0: Well, again, it's good to be with you this morning. It's kind of a momentous day in a number of ways. A couple of days ago, I think I was just coming back from this platform, having received two pies to my face, one from my left-handed son, one from my right, that I walked back to my office and looked at my phone and saw the news that Roe v. Wade had been overturned. And I am not one, as you will find very soon, to preach politics up here, to preach social issues. This is not a bully pulpit for my preferences or political allegiances in any sense. But there are times that happen, things that happen in in the surroundings of the people of God that we simply can't ignore. For something like Roe v. Wade, a decision that was decided 49 years ago, which created a federal right for a woman to let's just say it, slaughter an innocent life in her womb, the fact that that decision toppled in our lifetime is a significant event, and it deserves attention from the pulpit. So I'm going to say a few things about a Christian's response to the news from two days ago, June 24, 2022, before we get into our message for this morning. I recorded this on video a couple of days ago, but I realized not everybody watches videos, not everybody's on social media, so I figured this would be a good chance to say some things from up front this morning. Uh, Number one, I believe the Christian's response to the overruling of Roe v. Wade, number one is to rejoice. Uh, The fact that that ruling will have the result of innocent lives, lives that have been created, little boys, little girls created, in the image of God, that those lives will be spared is absolute reason to rejoice. Rejoice to thank God for his kindness, shining his face on this time, giving us a little ray of light and hope in an otherwise darkening time and reminding us that he is there, he is good, he is looking out for his people, he looks out for the lives of the innocents, and he is worthy to be praised. Uh, Number two, we of course have to alliterate, I'm a preacher, we realize, we have to realize that though these are praiseworthy events, and this is praiseworthy news, This is not the ultimate battle. It was an an evil thing, that decision and all the evil that came out of it, but it's not the end game. America is not suddenly a Christian nation because Roe v. Wade is overturned. You get what I'm saying? This is not a Christianized nation now, and it's not a Christianizing nation. No, 2 Timothy 3.13 says that things will and are going from bad to worse, and that is still the truth. We do have this glimmer of light in these dark days with this overruling of Roe, but things still will proceed from bad to worse, which leads to the third point, which is repent. Repent, meaning we still need to be people who are up front and out there with the gospel of Jesus Christ, showcasing what he has done for sinners like us through his bloody cross calling on sinners, whatever their sin, to repent and believe in his gospel, to be shown his grace, and to have their sins of whatever type washed away, to be washed white as snow. The solution to a better Nebraska, a solution to a better America, the solution to a better world is not that abortion is now eradicated in some 20-something states, The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not take our eye off that main thing that we are called to proclaim, that main message that we are called to proclaim, even in light of this great news. So rejoice, realize, repent, meaning calling on sinners to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's actually open God's word to Revelation chapter one as we start a new series this morning. Now imagine... However you spend your days, you can get overwhelmed, as I do, with the number of emails that you receive from digital marketers. You know, emails that are oddly, eerily tailored to your specific needs and your specific interests. You know, if you're a car guy, you might be getting emails from dealerships or part suppliers. If you're a young mom, you might be getting emails from stroller manufacturers or emails about mommy playdates that are coming up. If you're a fan of a certain sports team, you're getting emails notifying you of the, the latest news related to your team. It's no different in my world as a pastor. I get emails all the time from ministries I follow and upcoming conferences and new books that are coming out. Uh, that last category, those are the emails I really like to receive, the new books that are coming out. But the emails I have less love for, frankly, are the emails I receive from church consultants. See, every once in a while, I'll get an email from a church consultant who will tell me that for a rather substantial fee, he or she will provide us, our church, with a ministry health assessment, or help us to establish a vision, or to help us become a Great Commission organization, to which I would say, if we're not already a Great Commission organization, then we're actually not a church. Uh, Anyway, to make sure I'm not unfairly caricaturing these church consultancy firms, I went online this week to visit some of their websites to see how they market themselves. And sadly, the results were sad and the results were troubling. Because despite their catchy names and their clever branding that were emblazoned all across their websites, completely missing from their websites were the name above all names, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that sink in for a second. As these church consultancy firms seek to market themselves and, frankly, to turn a profit, these church consultancy firms that claim to be all about the church and for the church and want to help the church, they've left the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, completely out of the equation. I'm bringing this up because it highlights a real concern I have for not only the church universal, but the church local. To, to gauge, to, to measure our ministry success, our ministry health, by what voices on the outside are telling us. Experts and consultants who are pushing best business practices. Rather than encouraging us to hear directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as 1 Corinthians one twenty four says, is the wisdom of God. And that Lord, our Lord, has given us a timeless assessment of churches of every generation in every location, in his timeless and perfect and sufficient word. As I've mentioned already a few times this morning, I'm brand new, and as your new senior pastor, your teaching pastor, I do get a lot of questions about what's to come. Where are we going? What is the future direction of the church? What's going to be different? What are we going to change? But I would submit to you that a more important question to ask a more on-the-button question, a more pertinent question, is this. How are we doing today? How are we doing now? That's the question that's on the table here this morning. How are we doing? And as we come to that question, I want to make it absolutely clear that the answer does not ultimately lie with me. The answer does not ultimately lie with you. The answer certainly does not lie with any so-called wisdom from outside, Rather, the answer to the question, how are we doing now, rests with the Lord of the church, the one who rules and governs the church, the one who directs and disciplines the church, the one who died for the people in the church. I'm talking, of course, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be kicking off this new 10-week preaching series through Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and prayerfully, what this series will do will help us answer that question, What is the Lord Jesus Christ's evaluation of our church today? How does the Lord view Indian Hills Community Church now? It's a direct question. At times it can be a painful question to work through, but it's an important question to ask and to answer as we seek to honor and please the Lord in all that we do. The series that we're embarking on this morning is called Postcards from Patmos, and we get the title from these seven short letters, or what I call postcards, which Jesus, after his resurrection, after his ascension, directed the Apostle John to send to these ancient churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Western Turkey. These postcards are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and as we're going to see these postcards represent the Lord Jesus giving his candid evaluation of these seven specific churches in a specific region at a specific period of time. But these postcards are not dated artifacts. Rather, in them, we see that the Lord of the church giving his evaluation of churches globally and across the centuries and churches today. Meaning these postcards, each, all seven of them, are directed to us. Now, before we get into each of these postcards, which I will preach individually in the weeks ahead, we do need to engage with the text that precedes them. So while we will get to the postcards of Revelation 2 and 3, we need to spend first some time on the front porch of this book in Revelation chapter 1. With the, longest, the world's longest introduction now out of the way, and if you're not there already, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation is the revealing the unveiling, the disclosure of Jesus Christ, his plans, his person, his purposes. We're going to look at the first three verses here this morning. God's word reads as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now we'll be focusing on just these three verses here today which feed not only into the entire book of Revelation, but which feed immediately into Christ's assessment of these seven churches there in Asia Minor and by extension to the Lord's assessment of churches all across the globe today, including this church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, verses 1 through 3 are, are widely accepted as, as the prologue of the book of Revelation. They've also been called the preface to the book or the superscription to the book. Now, when we think of a prologue of or to any other book, we, we may dismiss it as not being all that important since prologue is, by definition, a a prior word. That's the meaning of the term prologue, the word before. So we might be tempted to to sort of pass over it until we get to the real content of the book. Well, unlike a non-biblical book, we cannot dismiss or gloss over the prologue to the book of Revelation. And we cannot do so first because the prologue is Holy Scripture. It is direct revelation from God. It is the very word of God which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Not only that, this brief prologue to the book of Revelation, as we're going to see, is laden with truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord Jesus Christ who will be giving his assessment of these seven churches and our church in Revelation 2 and 3. With that, note the first few words again of verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What we have here are introductory words which tell us how and for what purpose this revelation, what would later become known to us as the book of Revelation, is being given. Now, many trees have been felled and cut down over the years as arguments between theologians and Greek grammarians have raged about the meaning of the word of here, where it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many have asked, what does of mean? Is the text telling us that Christ is the revealer, meaning this is a revelation from Jesus Christ? That would be called in Greek a subjective genitive. Or is he the revealed one, meaning He is the one about whom revelation is being given. That would be called an objective genitive. For a number of reasons too lengthy to get into here, I go with the former option. I'll give you a couple reasons, but I can't give the full list syntactically of why. I take this to be a subjective genitive, meaning that the 66th book of the Bible is a revelation from Jesus Christ. I'll just give you a few reasons why I get to that conclusion. First is the plain statement of the Lord that's being made to John here in verse 1, which says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. That means just what it sounds like. God gave Jesus Christ a revelation to give to us. God revealed something to the Son, and the Son in turn now reveals that same something to us. We see similar language in the Gospel of John, where we encounter Jesus saying multiple times in that Gospel that the Son only speaks what he has heard from the Father. You could jot down John eight, twenty-six through twenty nine, John twelve, forty-nine through fifty, and John fourteen ten, where Jesus is saying he only speaks what he's been given by the Father. But back in Revelation one, in a similar way, the ascended and risen Christ reveals to his fathers. What the Father has been known to him. The the second reason I take this view about Jesus Christ being the one revealed, or the revealer, is the unmistakable reality that Christ is, if you just look at the text, functioning as revealer throughout the book of Revelation. He's directly addressing the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, revealing things he wants them to know and heed. He opens the book with the seven seals in Revelation 5. He then discloses the same content of that book in Revelation 6. Those are just a couple of examples of the role as revealer that Christ has in the book of Revelation. Third, there are many other places in the scriptures where the words revelation of Jesus Christ appear in this same sense, where he is the one doing the revealing. You could jot down 1 Corinthians 1.7, where we're awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians one twelve, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it, says Paul, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians one seven speaks to when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. First Peter one seven says so that the proof of your faith. Being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may, found, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So for each of these reasons, I do believe that the best way to take the word of here in verse 1, when the text speaks of the revelation of Jesus Christ, is to take it as a revelation from Jesus Christ. That's my exegetical conclusion. Exegetically, this is a subjective genitive, meaning it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation from Jesus Christ. But here's the thing while I take this exegetically to be a book from Jesus Christ, theologically, there's no question that this book is about Jesus Christ. Meaning, revelation is, in a very true sense, a revelation not only of Christ, but a revelation about Christ. I'm going to go through these rapid fire. I'm not even going to mention the references or else Jake back there will, like, his fingers will fall off as he tries to put these all on the screen. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty, the first and the last, the living one, the holder of the keys of death and Hades, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the one who is holy, who is true, the holder of the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the Lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb of God, the Lord, holy and true, the One who is called faithful and true, the Word of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Christ, the Messiah who will rule on earth with His glorified saints, Jesus, the Root and the Descendant of David, the bright morning star. You could very well say, without exaggeration, without hyperbole, that the very theme of the book of Revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see this morning, the first three verses of the first chapter of the book of Revelation are very much in keeping with that theme. In fact, as we're going to see in these first three verses, they are rich in instruction about key truths concerning the person, the nature, and the character Of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to work through this prologue, not so much from the standpoint of setting up an exposition of the entire book of Revelation, which I do hope to get to very soon, but rather from the standpoint of gaining a clearer picture of the risen, ascended, glorified Christ as we prepare to hear what he has to say to these churches in Revelation 2 and 3, but also to our church in 2022. So I've picked out five truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that we see coming off the page here, here in this prologue, here in verses one through three. I'm sure there are many more. I'm sure there's much more that can be said. He is unsearchable in his ways. But I've picked out five. Here's the first truth about Christ that we see in this passage. We'll call this Christological truth number one. He reveals himself. He reveals himself. Another way of saying that would be he is communicative. Though he would be no less good and no less loving and no less just and no less righteous had he chosen not to reveal himself, had he chosen not to be communicative, the fact is our Lord has revealed himself and he has done so in several ways. First he has revealed himself in creation. Through creation he has revealed himself through his creation of the world and the cosmos. John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1:16: for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's speaking about our Lord, the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also revealed himself not only in creating, but in upholding all things that he has created. That's Hebrews 1.3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So Christ reveals himself through creation. Not only that, he's revealed himself in his pre-incarnate appearances. Meaning before the cross. Before he put on flesh. It's widely recognized that the angel of Yahweh that we see referenced all throughout the Old Testament is, in many cases, in fact, the pre-incarnate Son of God. As John Walvoord put it in his work, Jesus Christ our Lord, the testimony of Scripture has been so complete on this point that in general, scholars who accept the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture are agreed that the angel of Jehovah, or, or Yahweh, is the Christ of the Old Testament. See, Walvert isn't overreaching here. See, the pre-incarnate Christ was there to minister to the disheartened Hagar after her rejection by Abraham in Genesis 16. He was there to stay the hand of Abraham as Abraham prepared to slay his son in Genesis 22. Therefore, Jesus was speaking truthfully to the Pharisees in John 8 when he said, before Abraham was, I am. He was there to appear to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He was there in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to lead Israel through the promised land, as we see in Exodus 14. Paul certifies that in 1 Corinthians 10.4 when he says that the spiritual rock which followed them was Christ. He was there to warn Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. He was there to warn Israel in the time of the judges in Judges chapter 2. Later in Israel's history, he was involved in the slaying of 185,000 Assyrians in 2 Kings 19. He ministered to Elijah. I could go on and on and on and on. Christ has revealed himself through his creation. Christ has revealed himself through his pre-incarnate appearances. And now here's the next one. He revealed himself through his incarnation, in his incarnation, and through his earthly ministry. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, meaning Christ, has explained, exegeted Him, meaning God the Father. Hebrews one one and 2, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, and in many ways, it says, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Christ revealed Himself in His incarnation. He also revealed himself following his resurrection. He revealed himself to Mary Magdalene and doubting Thomas in John 20. He revealed himself to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias in John 21. He revealed himself on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He revealed himself to Saul, later Paul, as he was charging his way to Damascus, breathing threats and murder in Acts chapter 9. Paul, by the way, would confirm all that in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, when he said, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And, of course, our Lord has revealed himself most clearly in our day through his word. There's no better place to see that than in Second Peter. In fact, turn with me to Second Peter, if you would. Second Peter chapter 1, where we're going to see the Lord's revealing himself through his word. Peter here in Second Peter 1, as you're turning there, is, of course, a witness to the Lord's transfiguration in his earthly ministry. And he says something. Now, this is older Peter, writing later, after the, the resurrection, after the ascension. And he says, for we, this is verse 16 of chapter 1 of Second Peter, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's speaking of the transfiguration there. And then if you jump down to verse 19, he then says, so, or in some translations say, but we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter witnessed the transfiguration, and now he's saying we have a prophetic word, meaning the word of God, that's more sure than the revelation he received of Christ back during Christ's earthly ministry. And then as we go back to Revelation 1.1, we see yet another way that Christ reveals himself as he reveals God's future yet-to-be-fulfilled plans for what's coming next, as he prepares the earth and its wicked, unrepentant habitants for destruction as he prepares his saints, his redeemed ones, for glory. All this to say, the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself. That's our Christological truth, number one. Here's the second one. He relates to the other members of the Trinity. The Lord relates to the other members of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and in Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, we do see this brief glimpse into the intra trinitarian relations between God the Father, the first member of the Godhead, and God the Son. We see these two members of the Trinity, of the Godhead, interacting with each other with the words here in verse 1, which God gave him. And what is it that God gave him? Well, there are some who believe that this statement builds on the words of our Lord in Mark chapter thirteen concerning his second coming, where it says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And, and according to that view, in the humiliation of his incarnation, when he emptied himself, Philippians two seven, taking the form of a bond servant, Jesus somehow restricted his independent use of his divine attributes. So that, according to this view, what we see in Revelation 1 is God the Father providing God the Son with information he lacked during his incarnation, during his humiliation. I don't think that's the best answer, and I don't believe that's the best answer for at least a few reasons. First of all, the book of Revelation nowhere gives us the day or the hour of the Lord's return, meaning it does not contain the very information that the Father here is supposedly now giving to the Son. Second, the glorified ascended Christ would have resumed full use of his divine attributes some 50 some odd years prior to what's happening here in Revelation. Because what happened more more than 50 years prior to this was his ascension, as he returned to that glorified state that preceded his incarnation. Meaning by the time the book of Revelation was written, the Lord Jesus Christ had no need for anyone to give him any, any information about anything. Third is, is this. There, there's a better answer, uh, which is that the revelation which God gave, it says here, to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is now captured in this book, I believe is actually the culmination of what we see laid out in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. There, Paul says that the Son of God would come to earth, empty himself by taking the form of a bondservant and the likeness of men. That he would humble himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a reward, Philippians 2.9 says, God would highly exalt him. I believe that's exactly what's being described here in the book of Revelation. Jesus, meek and mild, is now returning and reigning as Christ victorious. The one who emptied himself in the humiliation of his incarnation is now presented as the exalted one. I love this quote from W.A. Criswell in his expository sermons on Revelation. He really builds up this distinction between Christ as the humble servant in his first coming and Christ portrayed as he's portrayed here in the book of Revelation. Listen in as to what Criswell says. He says, The first time our Lord came into this world, he came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with his manhood. His Godhead was hidden by his humanity. Just once in a while did his deity shine through, as on the Mount of Transfiguration, or as in his miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder, and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, were veiled. These attributes were covered over in flesh, in our humanity. He was born in a stable, he grew up in poverty. He knew what it was to hunger and thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised up as a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. The last time that this world saw Jesus was when it saw him hanging in shame, misery, and anguish upon the cross. He later appeared to a few of his believing disciples, but the last time that this unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when it saw him die as a malefactor, as a criminal crucified on a Roman cross. That was part of the plan of God a part of the immeasurable, illimitable grace and love of our Lord. By his stripes, we are healed. But then, is that all the world is ever to see of our Savior? Dying in shame on a cross? No. It is also a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, this blaspheming, this godless world shall see the Son of God in his full character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of his Godhead. Then all men shall look upon him as he really is. They shall see him holding in his hands the title deed to the universe, holding in his hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us, the universe around us, and then the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in his pierced and loving hands. Wow. I want to take a breath. I almost want to get a drink right now. We truly do see Christ's exaltation. As the ruling, reigning, victorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords described throughout the book of Revelation. And the point here is take this home with you is that we cannot detach his exaltation from his eternally Trinitarian relationship with God the Father. Here's the third truth about our Lord that we can pick up from this passage Christological truth number three, he is God. There is only one who knows and declares the future, God. In fact, turn with me, if you would, back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44, where we're going to see that truth highlighted. I'm not the one making this statement. We ultimately see God making this statement in his word. Look at Isaiah 44, verse 7. These are the words of Yahweh. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. And then flip over to Isaiah 46. A couple pages over to Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Going back to our text in Revelation 1, this means that only God can know the things which must take place. And the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows these things is one of many evidences that the scriptures give to his deity. It's one of many proofs that the Bible gives that the Lord truly is God. And what are these things that he speaks of here in verse 1? He says, "To, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Well, those things are described throughout the remainder of this book. We know once the church has been raptured out of the world, a seven-year period of tribulation will be ushered in, a period for the unbeliever that will be a period of of unspeakable grief and pain and terror and anguish. And then following that tribulation will be the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory with his saints. And that will then usher in a 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ on the earth, a time that is marked largely by peace and prosperity but will be capped by a final satanic uprising, leading to Satan being tossed in the lake of fire. Then after the great white throne judgment comes the eternal state, which will be the new heavens and the new earth for believers and an eternity of torment for unbelievers. These are the things which must soon take place, to use the words of verse 1. As one commentator notes, history is not a haphazard sequence of unrelated events, but a divinely decreed ordering of that which must take place. But also note that the text also says here that they must soon take place. These things not only must take place, but they must take place, it says soon. Soon here in Greek is in take, and the word we see in different translations can be rendered quickly or briefly, but I actually don't take that word soon here to reference speed or quickness. I don't necessarily look at it as being a brief time span or or haste. Rather, I take this to mean imminence. Imminence. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. Imminence. I agree with Robert Thomas, who wrote that the purpose of intake is to teach the imminence of the events foretold, not to set a time limit in which they must occur. Soon, then, does not so much refer to the time of his coming, as it refers to the nearness of his coming, and our corresponding anticipation of his coming. Now, that's the sense of intake, imminence, that we see in other places in Revelation as well. In Revelation 2.16, when Christ is addressing the church at Pergamum, I am coming to you in-take, quickly. It's in Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia, Revelation 3.11, I am coming in-take, Quickly. We see it in, the, uh, in between the woes in Revelation 11, where it says, The second is past. Behold, the third woe is coming in take quickly. We see it in Revelation 22 6, where the angel tells John that the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon in take, take place. See, this idea of imminence is not to glamorize date setting. In fact, date setting is prohibited by Scripture, where Acts 1-7 says we won't know the times by which the Father has fixed on his own authority. This idea of imminence is not designed to puff anyone up about nailing the exact timeline on which Christ will come for his people. Rather, what this idea of imminence is designed to do is to put us in a state of readiness and alertness. You know, Matthew 24-42, in the context of the second coming there, says, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Here in Revelation 1, in light of the imminence of the events of the things which are soon to take place, the, the takeaway point is this. We are to have our rugs swept. We are to have our houses in order. We are to be, as Luke said, or it said in Luke twelve thirty five, we are to be dressed in readiness. We are to keep our lamps lit We are to keep our hearts right. We are called to keep our minds inclined and our affections directed toward him who will one day come to get us. Because the reality is once the events of the end, the eschaton, start taking place, they will start happening quickly and in rapid fire sequence. You know, the rapture will take place immediately. The twinkling of an eye, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. And then the judgments that will sweep the earth during the tribulation period will happen with remarkable force and speed, with seven years of wrath being poured out on the entire wicked and rebellious world. Even the thousand year earthly reign of Christ on earth during the millennium will be brief by God's standards. It is a literal one thousand years, but Second Peter three eight says with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And importantly, what this concept of imminence ought to do for us, as 1 Thessalonians 4.8 puts it, is it ought to comfort us to know that we may meet the Lord in the air at any time. Could be today. Could be tonight. Could be before the next election cycle. Could be before the next season of Husker football. We don't know. Could come at any time. And what that should do is spur us on and motivate us to live holy and obedient and godly lives. 2 Peter 3.14 says it this way. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And it should spur us on to persevere in faithfulness as we prepare. We wait for the clouds to break, for the Lord to split the sky as he takes us out of this world. So we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself, truth number one. We've seen that he relates to the other members of the Trinity, truth number two. We've now seen that he is God, truth number three. Here's the fourth truth about the Lord Jesus Christ that we can extract from this passage. He is master over all. He is master over all. First, we see that he's master over the angelic realm. I'm still in verse one, by the way. We see from our text that the Lord Jesus Christ is master over, look at the words at the end of verse 1, his angel. This angel apparently was the one who communicated this book by way of Christ to its human author, John, to us. The angel did not communicate this book on his own, the angel did not go rogue. The angel is not equal in authority to Jesus. Note, Jesus communicated the context of this book through his angel. We see a similar statement. I've already referenced it in Revelation 22, 16, where it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you that these things for the churches. And what that signifies is that the Lord Jesus Christ is master over the angelic realm. He is above the angel's. He is, as the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 1.4, much better than the angels, having inherited a more excellent name than they. Who is this angel? We don't know. Some have surmised that this is referring to the archangel Michael, who's referenced in Jude 9. I don't think we have enough exegetical evidence to make that call. But well, all we know is that this is the angel of Christ, Christ's directed messenger a part of the heavenly host who has been given the charge to deliver this specific message to John. So Christ is master over the angelic realm. Christ is also master over the apostles. We see that also in verse 1. He's master over, look at the last few words of verse 1, his bondservant, John. John, by the way, I should have said this earlier, is the apostle John. Uh, The the former fisherman, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the former son of Thunder, who wrote this book of Revelation while in exile on the, the Isle of Patmos. God the Father gave this revelation, as we've seen, to God the Son, as we've seen, who communicated it to his angel, who in turn communicated it to Christ's bondservant, John. In other words, John has been charged with writing down what's been revealed to him by Christ's angel and then communicate what he's received to the churches at large. And that's in fact exactly what we see John doing in the book of Revelation. We see John faithfully carrying out his duties as Christ's bondservant. Look at verse 2. This is referring to John right here who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John is responding to his master. He's viewing himself properly here. He's addressing others properly, and he's even introducing himself properly. He could have called himself the Apostle John here. He could have called himself the Right and Reverend John, but he doesn't. He sees himself properly as not being anyone who is worth anything, but rather a doulos, a bondservant, a slave, and specifically a slave of a good and gracious master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is not only master over the angelic realm, though, and not only master over the apostles, he's master over the church. I'm just going to give you a few verses now for that. He's head of the body, Colossians 1.18 says, the church. Ephesians 1.22 says God gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 2.19 and 20 says we are of God's household, meaning the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Christ is the master of the angelic realm, Christ is master of the apostles, Christ is master of the church. Christ also is master over the world and everything in it. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One of my favorite old hymns is, Fairest Lord Jesus. which The first stanza says, Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature. O thou of God and man the Son. Thee I will cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. He's ruler of all nature, ruler of the world. And and last but not least, he is master, the Lord Jesus is, over you and me. He's our master. We are his douloi, his bondservants, which literally means his slaves. And of course, in our post Reconstruction, post-slavery American existence, we think of slavery in in, in those terms by default, if we're not careful, if we don't look through the Bible first. This is not talking about the abomination that was American slavery. This is talking about a special type of master-slave relationship where the slave served his master out of love and devotion to him who truly cared and protected him. You could jot down Exodus chapter 21 for a cross-reference on that. But note now, it is only for those who are truly Christ's slaves that the book of Revelation, and for that matter, any book of the Bible, is comprehensible. Those who are not Christ's slaves, who don't have this spirit living in them, are going to have difficulty with this book. They'll dismiss this book, they'll attempt to allegorize this book, they'll torture this book, they'll see it as foolishness, that's 1 Corinthians 2.14, and that's because it's veiled to them. But for the true follower of Christ, for the slave of Christ, for Christ's doulos, his slave, they will cherish this book. They will cling to the hope of this book. They will study this book, and they will look forward with joy and anticipation to all the events that this book foretells. As John MacArthur notes, unbelievers couldn't grasp what Jesus meant when he was teaching about present spiritual realities, meaning during his earthly ministry. Neither can they grasp the future realities. Divine truth is hidden from the world wise. That's true, isn't it? When we think about Jesus speaking in parables during his first advent the unbelieving skeptic says macarthur finds in the book of revelation nothing but chaos and confusion but to the loving willing bond servants of jesus christ this book is the understandable unveiling of prophetic truth about the future of the world christ is master over all. here's the fifth truth about our lord that we can pick up from this passage verses one through three Christological truth number five is that he expects and blesses obedience. He expects and blesses obedience. Look at verse three. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This actually is one of seven beatitudes that are given in the book of Revelation in parallel, in a way, to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and really similar, in a way, to the words of Psalm chapter 1, which speak to the benefit and the blessing of living obedient lives. The book of Revelation is scattered with promises of blessing to those who heed and obey the words it contains. We have it here in chapter 1, verse 3. We have it also in Revelation 22, 7, which says, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. But there are also five other places of blessing that the book of Revelation contains. Uh, Revelation fourteen thirteen, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Revelation sixteen fifteen, blessed is the one who stays awake. Revelation nineteen nine, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation twenty six, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in a first resurrection. Revelation twenty two fourteen, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. But let's focus on the blessing given here in verse 3 in our passage where it says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. There are three participles woven into that verse, read, hear, and heed. Read, hear, and heed. And each one of those participles is given to us in the present tense, which means that our reading and our hearing and our heeding are to be continual ways of life for the true follower of Christ. Now, in the immediate context, we know that the words of this prologue are speaking about reading and hearing and heeding, the book of Revelation specifically. But we know from other places in the Bible That the same idea, the same concept applies to all of God's word. To all of Christ's commands. Not just to what we see in the book of Revelation. You could jot down Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Or Luke 6, 46 and following says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me, this is our Lord speaking, And hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and it immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. In other words, the words of Scripture are not given to us merely to be informative. And getting more specific with the book of Revelation, this final book in the canon is not given to us merely to be predictive. Rather, all books of the Bible are given to us to be morally instructive. That's what one commentator On Revelation noted, he said, though Revelation is not a collection of laws, its message provides us demands no less serious. Christ expects obedience to his word, all of it. And he does so in light of what we see at the end of verse 3 here, those last few words, for the time is near. This is a companion statement to what we saw in verse 1 about the things that must soon take place. The word here for time in verse 3 is not chronos, which would refer to time on a clock or on a calendar. It's rather kairos, which means a season or an era. What's being said here is that the next phase of God's plan, the ushering in of the final events of the eschaton, is near. It's imminent. It's on the horizon. We're closer to it today than we were yesterday. And this idea of the nearness of what comes next is laced not only through the Book of Revelation, but all over the New Testament. Just jot down these references, if you would. Romans thirteen twelve. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Hebrews ten twenty five, he's encouraging the early church to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Or Peter in 1 Peter four seven says, The end of all things is near. Or James, James 5, 7. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And even this author, the Apostle John, elsewhere in 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And the imminence of what awaits on the eschatological timeline ought to spur us on to faithful, holy, Christ-honoring living. As we heed, hear, and read, not only the book of Revelation but all of Scripture, as we allow all of the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, to richly dwell within us. So when we crack open this first chapter of Revelation, especially for those of us who have been Christians for a while, who have been walking with the Lord for a while, who have some, some sense or grasp on God's word, we can get caught up in thinking about this book through the lens of horns and trumpets and beasts and harlots, We can get caught up in putting together the puzzle pieces to map out the timing of the tribulation, what to make of Babylon, and the identity of the Antichrist. But if we do that and only that, my contention would be that we can lose sight of who the book of Revelation is all about. As I've attempted to show you here this morning, the book of Revelation is fundamentally a book about Jesus Christ. It's not the only book in the Bible that's about Jesus Christ. Obviously, the Gospels are about Jesus Christ as they present him in his first coming. The Epistles are about Jesus Christ as they remind us of various gospel truths and, and how we are to live as his followers. But the book of Revelation is fundamentally about Jesus Christ as well. Having covered just these three verses this morning, we've only scratched the surface On just these few Christological observations about our Lord, we've seen that he is one who reveals himself, he relates to the other members of the Trinity, he is God, he is master over all, and he expects and blesses obedience. Over the next two Sunday morning messages, we're going to continue to flesh out what this first chapter of Revelation tells us about the person and nature and character of the ascended and glorified Christ. And there we're going to see the king of glory in all his beauty, in his transcendent holiness, in his infinite majesty. And it is this Jesus who has dispatched John to send his postcards from Patmos to the seven churches of his day. It's this Jesus who we will stand before one day to give an account for all we stewarded and all that he entrusted us with here in his church. It is this Jesus who is not only preeminent in the church, but in the world, as Colossians 1.18 says, he gets first place in everything. Let's give that Jesus praise as we close our time in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the time in your word. We thank you that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus, the Jesus that we see now unveiled in his glory in the book of Revelation, you sent him meek and mild into this world to save and to seek and save sinners like us. We're grateful. We're grateful that we have been reconciled, for we who have trusted in Christ to you, God our Father, that we now have the Spirit living in us and we have the example set before us in Christ and we have the ability to pursue holiness and righteousness which we did not have before. We have the hope of heaven, the hope of eternal life. We have the truth of your word, which guides us and leads us. We have the family of believers here that we can have fellowship with. We can pray to you, cry out to you, sing to you, worship you in every way. And for that, we say thank you. Lord Jesus, we simply praise you for who you are in your ascended glory. I pray that everybody here this morning would come away encouraged and motivated to worship you faithfully. To view you as you are today and to look forward with anticipation to when you come to get us, to rescue us from this earth, to deliver us from the wrath to come. We give you thanks and praise for this time in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen.